Blenders, and welcome, welcome to episode number 106 of Real Blend, the podcast that knows the difference between carbonite and kryptonite. Thank you very much. <laughs> On today's I show, I just work here. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm throwing in kid because it just makes it seem uh, a little more. I don't know, kid. I just work here. Uh, on today's show, we are going to be discussing the new Batsuit reveal. Not quite as new, I understand. You guys have probably been talking about it for a little while, but we have not yet officially commented on it. Uh, the boys, Jake and Kevin, are going to be talking about interviewing Harrison Ford, which is the point of my joke previously. And we have an exclusive interview this week with the director of a new film called Wendy. His name is Ben Zeitlin. He uh, directed a film called The Beasts of the Southern Wild earlier, and he jumped on with us to talk about Wendy. And when I say us, I am referring to, as always, the co-host of The Real Blend Podcast, in addition to myself being Sean O'Connell, the managing director of Cinema Blend. I'm going to throw it to Jake Hamilton of Fox 32 in Chicago because he just started to drink something. Hi, Jake. I knew as soon as I picked up my tea that you were going to call me out. How are you, brother? I'm wonderful, sir. And joining us, as always, Kevin McCarthy of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. Hi, Kev. Sean, Jake, Gabe, how are you guys? Miss you guys. Love you guys. Let's get to all the plugs um, for things that we have for this growing, growing show. It's a reminder, first off, that we have a community page over on Facebook. Um, There's always a ton of fun conversations going on between the Blender family. Every time I go back and revisit that page, it's grown by more members. A lot of names on there from people who don't interact with us on social media on the Twitter side. So this has been pretty exciting to see that Facebook community sort of grow. So head on over there, search for Real Blend Podcast Community. Uh, We're also posting episodes of Real Blend on Cinema Blend's YouTube page. So if you'd rather stream the show uh, there, you can head on over to youtube.com backslash Cinema Blend and subscribe. And I want to point out that I'm just now starting to also on that YouTube page do recaps of Westworld. Now, Jakey, you've seen yes. both seasons of that. Is that right? Yes. Oh, I'm all caught up, baby. I'm ready for season three. Kevin, you watch Westworld? I've never seen it, but the only thing that intrigues me about it now is that Aaron Paul is involved. Yes. So that, that that's uh I still have so much TV to catch up on. I mean, I've been too busy watching movies over and over again, too many movies over and over yeah, again. Including- you know, so it's funny, this is an interesting conversation I think you would, you guys would like. So it's not to bring in too much of a, a hard story or hard politics. Um, the former governor of Illinois, Rob Blagojevich, uh, was just, uh, has had his sentence commuted. He was in jail for eight years okay. uh, out of a 14-year sentence. And the conversation I brought up today was, what out of pop culture has he missed? Like, he just got home last night, <laughs> and what are the big things that like he's going to have to get caught up on. And my first thought was, does he know Han Solo's dead? Yeah, three uh, like, Star yeah, Wars movies. Yeah, like there are more than that. I'm Five just bummed Solo he missed movies. Interstellar Five and movies. Dunkirk. That's the only, that, those are the two <laughs> things that I would be bummed about. Infinity but, War so, and so, Endgame. So like, I, that, it, it's weird to think like all the TV that you know someone has, has missed over the course of, uh, of eight years. You know, coming out of eight years in prison, I'm sure these are the last things that are on his mind. Yeah, he's got, he's got two daughters, he's got a wife. But <laughs> what he doesn't show should know, I catch up on? He doesn't know that Han Solo and Luke Skywalker are dead. <laughs> if he follows you on Twitter, he does. Uh, <laughs> of course, we're always available on all of your favorite podcast apps as well, too. So if you're not already subscribed, please do so. And then most importantly... Tell a friend. Uh, if you don't um, happen to see us on your favorite podcast app, let producer Gabe know. And he claims he's going to get on it right away. But we'll see if that actually happens. Uh, throw Gabe underneath the bus. He gives me a little, uh, we'll see. Uh, weekly poll time. We put one up on Friday and we asked everybody, this is really interesting. Okay, in light of the Call of the Wild opening this week, uh, we asked everybody, what is Harrison Ford's best role? This was a Jake idea. I really liked it a lot. Um, the choices were Indiana Jones, Han Solo, 
Rick Deckard or another one. Other. You say Deckard? Deckard? Deckard. De- Rick Deckard. 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 Black K Klansman. Name, we- name, names, are, uh, <laughs> names are not your forte, are they, Sean O'Connor? Rick can, Deckard. Can we get a, um, like a, a compilation of all of Sean's mispronunciations? Because Mindy. They're, Sam they're Mindy's. Mindy's. Black K Klansman. What, uh, what else? Deckard. Are Kevin McCarthy. No, there's a, there's a couple other actors that he kept like botching two out there. Remember off the top of my head, but Denarius is pretty good. Denarius, that's a good one. Yeah, Denarius is another big one. All right. Um, since Jake is such a Harrison Ford aficionado, I'm going to ask Kevin what he thinks won this week's poll. Indiana Jones, Han Solo, Rick from Blade Runner. <laughs> 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 or or another one. Uh, I mean, I feel like Han Solo won that, right? All right, Jake. I w- Personally, I would have voted Indiana Jones. I could see Han Solo winning, but I want to say, if we're talking about like his actual character, Indiana Jones. Is Indy by a long shot. Indy with 58%, and Han Solo only got 29%. Uh, Deckard got 10 and then there was a 3%. Did anybody put any others that, like, no names were listed? Some people just voted other? Just to be different. Yeah, we know who you guys are. You just wanted to be cool and vote other. Do you think part of it, part of the reason people chose Indy, and granted, I just rewatched all four indie movies because I was just so jacked up about Harrison Ford over the weekend. So I watched all four. Um, do you think it's just because his attitude about Indy is far more positive and enthusiastic than his attitude about Han Solo and Star Wars? Like he just seems to Maybe. light up more when talking about Indy than he does talking about Han Solo. Yeah, I guess so. Also, like that franchise is all about indie star Wars yeah. is shared with so many other different characters. Not that Han's not an important character and he's obviously iconic, yeah. but you know, if you're saying what's his best role kind of thing, I could see Indiana Jones sort of. What would you vote? I'd probably vote Indy. I would. I, I would vote Indy. Yeah, I think I'd have to. Kevin, where would even, you Even because one thing I noticed is that even in the indie movies, I don't like Crystal Skull and, and Temple of Doom. One thing you can't deny is that he's still great as those characters, even in those movies. Like even Crystal Skull, which is not a good movie. Did you say you don't he's, like Temple of Doom? I don't like Temple of Doom. You, what? Temple of Doom is probably Temple the Temple of Doom's amazing. I'm sorry. What Temple of Doom? Op- you think the opening think, of Temple of Doom? I is the hate best the opening of Temple of Doom. I think the opening of Temple of Doom is the best opening of the entire trilogy. Uh, no question. It's not even wait, close. Wait. That's interesting because the River Phoenix Zoo train is actually pretty good. I'm sorry. You guys think the River Phoenix train and mm. and and the 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 anything goes sequence is better than than the fucking Boulder chasing the boulder? after Indiana Jones? Yes, 100. percent that is like the most one of the most iconic scenes in the history of movies. Just, just because it's iconic, mean it's great though. Yeah. yeah, iconic doesn't mean it's great, right? Yeah, I agree with doesn't you. Doesn't it though? I, first of all, well, no, because uh, the the sled in Citizen Kane is iconic. Is that movie great? Not really. It's kind of boring to be honest. I mean, it's shot well, but uh, I mean, iconic. I don't know. Is what's up from Scary Movie? That's iconic. Is that great? <laughs> Your definition That's of iconic. iconic is way looser than my definition of iconic. And a lot of people, and, and to go back to your other one, a lot of people would argue that the sled from Citizen Kane is great. Oh, I think the sled's fine, but I, I don't love the movie. I think the story's boring. I, and there's I, arguably I just, I just, three other scenes in Raiders that are far more iconic than the opening with the boulder. Agreed. The, with, with, with the fertility idol and, and the sand? and Gabe, back me up, man. No, I understand what you're saying. I've seen the movie, but I'm saying... What, what, other, what other sequences in Indy, are, are in, in Raiders, are, are more iconic than the oh, fertility idol and the Oh, fighting with the bald boulder. guy around the plane. Agreed. By far. You think that's more... Like, 
cinematically iconic. Wait a second. See, now you're changing your well, word. Yeah, yeah. Now, now you're now saying iconic versus favorite. Like, this is a completely different conversation. <laughs> we've been, no, we've been saying iconic. Iconic. No, 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 no. Iconic. Prior <laughs> to all iconic. the iconic dialogue, the question was whether or not we thought the opening of Temple of Doom. We've been using the word iconic for the last better. 20 minutes. <laughs> yes. Okay. What is the. Oh, I, 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 okay. We, we're on a, such a. But this far, is a good tangent. I like this, though. I think, I think Last Crusade is the best of the three. No question. So does Spielberg, actually. I, I read Spielberg think that that's his favorite. I will say the chemistry between the two of them is amazing. Crusade is my favorite. Temple of Doom has the best opening of the entire trilogy. I, I only say trilogy because I don't think four exists in my mind. But I, I, I just. I love Raiders of the Lost Ark. Don't get me wrong. I think I think, I think Indiana Jones is actually a better trilogy than Star Wars. Personally. Now this is this is a weird. I really do. Um, this is a weird because I think I love, and this goes to our Die Hard discussion where you guys like Vengeance maybe more than the first one because you saw Vengeance first. I grew up on Temple of Doom. Temple of Doom mm. was not the first. I'm sure I saw Raiders first, but I saw Temple of Doom like a thousand times in the theater. Um, so that, I think it has a favorite, I think that feels like my favorite one because I watched it the most. Wait, is Temple of Doom not considered a good movie? I love Temple of Doom. Is that uh, a bad, is that considered um, bad? Some argue I that think it's, it's just so dark. But what's, because it's dark, I it's would bad? like. I, I, I'm not a fan of Short Round. I don't think Kate Capshaw is very good. Kate Capshaw's uh, annoying. I don't out. think that the. Shelley um, Duvall's annoying and shining, but the movie's still great. Yeah, but she was really yeah, but annoying. Jake, you do not like Shelley Duvall in The Shining, but you love The Shining. So explain that. Ye, well, Shelley Duvall doesn't take away from The Shining. I think Kate Capshaw takes away from She Temple distracts. Also, she I don't like them. Short Round. What's wrong with Short Round? Short Round's great. He's annoying. Short, short Round's great. But either way, the the mine car scene alone is one of Spielberg's greatest set pieces. I think the opening cool. of Temple cool. of Doom is arguably one of the greatest openings in the history of cinema. Here, here's I'm not I'm not trying to say Temple of Doom is a bad movie, but if we're saying that like for me, Raiders is a 10, Raiders is a 10 out of 10, and Last Crusade's a solid ass 9, Temple of Doom is like a 7. Uh, See, I, I would go seven. I would I go 10. Seven. I'd give 10 to Crusade and I would give oh. I think Temp, I think Temple of Doom and, and Raiders are the same. They're on evil play, equal playing field for me. I don't find them to be equal. I find them to be equally great. I love right. those movies. All right, but Blender's you guys also in. have the weird thoughts on Back to the Future too. Way back, in on social back media. Back to the Future and Indiana Jones are better trilogies than Star Wars. Oh, they oh, are. They are. They oh, just. They just. I just are. can't. I can't with back you. Back to the Future is <laughs> such a better trilogy than Star Sometimes Wars. Sometimes I feel like you guys have a meeting before the show <laughs> and you try to come up with things that are going to piss me off. No, and you succeed every week. You're so good at it. That's the beauty of the show is that it just organically happens. I have aged so much doing this show Uh, just from the stress. And my my blood pressure is up because of the show. I can't handle it. But to Sean, you agree with me that Back to the Future is a better trilogy than Star Wars. Do you not? Sean. If if I'm sitting on it. If I'm sitting on the couch and TNT has a a Star Wars movie, any Star Wars movie, um, and TBS has... E- any of the three Back to the Futures, I'm watching the Back to the Future. Sean, if you're if you're being sent to a desert island, <laughs> and you can only bring yeah either the Back to the Future trilogy or the Star Wars trilogy, right. you Bring Back to the Future on yeah. the desert the, island. No yeah. question. Without question. Oh, I would rather question. be alone on a desert island with my Star Wars <laughs> than have company with a couple of assholes that would rather bring Back to the Future. I hope you two enjoy your little love fantasy island together. Without question, Back to the Future is tremendous. Robert Back tremendous to the Future is a perfect trilogy. It Star is. Wars is not. It's fantastic. And that's what it comes down to. Is Mary Steenburgen in Star Wars? 
I wash my hands of this. There we go. Good idea. Uh, a long time ago, Steven Spielberg made a Peter Pan film uh, called Hook. Love that I love movie. that movie. I love uh, that with, movie. Ro- with Robin Williams in the movie. Uh, to this day, I still haven't seen it. Um, You've never seen Hook? However, uh, I did see... Wendy, uh, a new movie by Ben Zeitlin. And Ben Zeitlin, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, did a film called Beasts of the Southern Wild, which I loved, made my top 10 the year that it came out. Um, People might not realize this, but you'll hear it in the beginning of the interview. As a first-time director, he landed in the best director category uh, and shared it with the likes of uh, Steven Spielberg, who had directed Lincoln that year, uh, Ang Lee, who won for Life of Pi, uh, Michael Haneke was in there for Amore, and I'm blanking on who the four, oh, David O. Russell for Silver Linings Playbook. Those are the four guys who are in the director's category with Ben Zeitlin, <laughs> who was a first-time director for Beasts of the Southern Wild. His follow-up is uh, coming out to theaters soon. It's going to be in limited release on February 28th, and we were able to jump on to uh, the phone with him really quick and talk about it, uh, and then I'll give you a quick review afterwards. So without further ado, this is the Real Blend interview with Wendy director Ben Zeitlin. So, Ben, we're just now emerging from the shadow of the Oscar season, and I have to kind of start there with you, having uh, been a person who survived it um, and with your very first film. I'm curious, when you look back on that years later, uh, of the marathon run that you took with Beasts of Southern Wild, what's your memory of the, of the Oscar season and, and the, the length of it, and then especially Oscar night? Um, it was surreal, you know, and, you know, my main memories of it are the journey that I went on with the cast. You know, it was like an incredible time for me and Dwight Henry and Quivengene and, and Quivengene's mom, Quilindria, um, just to, like, go on this adventure that none of us had ever prepared for, you know. I mean, I just none of us really having had traveled much before or or certainly I'd I'd never really been to Hollywood before. They definitely hadn't. And, you know, for all of us, it was, you know, we would go out and we would like behave at these parties and dress up. And then we would like get back to the hotels and get in the van and just cut up. And, um, just, I don't know those, those, they were some really weird and really fun times, you know? Who did you get to meet during that run? That was the most impressive to you. We're just like, Oh my gosh, I'm having a conversation with fill in the blank. And then I met some really incredible directors, you know, people that I looked up to, you know, just from the people that were on tour with me. Um, I met Michael Haneke. Um, I met um, Steven Spielberg. I met um, um, later he wasn't on tour, but I, I met um, Martin Scorsese. And that was like a really interesting one because I met him like he was taking a break from cutting Wolf of Wall Street at the time. And he was so stressed out about the edit. And I was so moved by that because I was like, man, you know, it's really comforting to know that you can do this at that level your whole life and be, you know, an elder statesman of the art form and just still be so in it to the point where you can't even think because you're just like in a scene in the edit. And so I, I remember right. that being really inspiring. And he's got Thelma on his side too. You know, no, she was talk. like in the next room. She was, he, he like stepped out of the room and I was like, I wonder if I'm going to get to make Thelma, but it was like, no way. Thelma's in it right now. You can't talk to Thelma. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I want to point out that these are the names that were in your director category for people who might not be up to speed on this. You were uh, in the company of Ang Lee, like you mentioned, Michael Haneke, Steven Spielberg, David O. Russell, and yourself. Just an incredible, you know, incredible company to keep, as they say. Um, Post Oscars, I'm really curious, um, what does Oscar attention earn you uh, as you're trying to do a follow up? Is it as valuable as people on the outside might lead it to believe or or do you go right back to square one where you're, you know, trying to get the band back together? It certainly helps you get a film made. It doesn't help you make it. You know what I mean? Like it's the the challenge of making a film 
remains, and I don't know how much it changes, you know, based on your circumstances, you know, um, you know, but, but certainly we had an incredible opportunity. Um, and, and for us, you know, the opportunity wasn't really about, you know, getting sort of a, making a film with big actors or making a, you know, getting a massive budget or anything like that. You know, we, we, we really wanted to use this opportunity to take the exact same methods that we used to make Beasts of the Southern Wild and then take them as far as we could possibly push them. And so, you know, we, to make the film with the same group of people, to continue working with non-professional actors, to work with even more children on this next one, but then to go do that uh, and shoot the film in a place that uh, just was, that it's just unprecedented to make a film in. And so we went to the island of Montserrat and also shot in Antigua, Barbuda, um, in the West Indies, um, and just challenged ourselves to make this film, uh, to take something larger as larger than life as Peter Pan and then, and then make it real and shoot a real Neverland and shoot and actually go to the most remote, uh, parts of the planet to, um, to see if we could make an adventure film and live an adventure as wild as the film was basically. Good. Let's shift to that because, you know, choosing Neverland as it's, you know, it's not a set, you, it's a location, you know, and I, yeah. I would assume the easiest way would be to do it on a back lot someplace where you can control the elements. Um, you don't do that. No. <laughs> you know, <laughs> talk a bit about your motivation for deciding, like, you're going to set this fantasy in, in an actual location and then and then scouting and finding the place that fit what was in your mind. Yeah. You know, I mean, a, a huge priority for us was to that, you know, we did not want to make this adventure inside of a computer, you know, um, right. and, and we wanted in particular, you know, um, you know, my association with adventure, as true adventure as children is, is what as a child was to really go out and really get dirty and really get wet and really fall down and, and really, you know, like being in actual tactile contact with an unknown place, you know, um, and, and, you know, you, you look at sort of versions of how that's expressed these days and, it, you know, you watch something like the jungle book and probably the kid in the jungle book never went outside the entire time. You know, you really wanted right. to make an ode to, uh, to, to the feeling of childhood as connected to nature, um, and, and to be in the elements and to have those elements be just every bit as massive and awe inspiring as any sort of magic that you could build, uh, on a, on a VFX rig. God, you know, just having you say that I have a vivid memory of a location on my childhood block that was it's a separation between two homes that was just trees and bushes. Yeah. And I can't tell you how many times I just walked from one side of the block to the other through this hallway of nature. Yeah. And I came up with a million things that were happening inside of that. And it's so that's what comes through in your film. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and it was a real like, I mean, one of the we, we were we were further like radicalized, uh, honestly, on this idea as we tried to cast the film and we saw just how few kids actually played outside for fun. You know, it was like sure. we would push it, you know, thousands and thousands of kids who we looked at for these roles. It was sort of like, what do you do outside? You know, and, and often there was no answer. You know what I mean? And, and, and that uh, and even just in terms of how people's imaginations worked, it was like their imagination was so within what was they were digesting digitally. And, and we really wanted to break this film out of that and sort of like remember and recall that we are here on this planet, it has all the wonder we could ever want if we actually take the time to get away from screens and go out and run through it. And so we lived that experience making the film and we wanted to find kids that really knew and understood and loved that and then and then bring that experience back home to audiences. 
All right. But you've been saying for that in interviews that, you know, the, the Peter Pan story is something you've been trying to crack for about seven years now. Is that seven or eight years that you've been pushing for this or even longer? Yeah, no, we've been we started really working on this film like right at the tail end of Beast. So it was probably around 2013. We started the script and uh, and started scouting and, and looking for for the places. When you were tackling the story, what are some of the things that you wanted to try to avoid um, for fear of sort of treading any familiar ground that audiences might have seen in a Peter Pan story before? Well, I think we were never really worried that we might make a Peter. We might make a Peter Pan movie that had ever existed before or would ever exist right. again. You know, we were really making a film that we knew was almost impossible to make. And we were doing things that were unprecedented, you know, um, and, and um, you know, really for us, we weren't trying to remake Peter Pan in any kind of way. We were wanted to take the framework of the mythology, the sort of the basic characters, Peter, Wendy and a world where. Uh, you stay young as long as you stay joyful, free and believe, you know, like that was all we really wanted to take. And we wanted to really use that framework as a way to jump into these themes that had to do with kind of the tension between freedom and caring, really. You know, um, how do you how do you love people? How do you love your family and also stay free? And that's a tension that sort of gets, I think, more and more complicated as people get older and sacrifice more and more for others and then in sometimes lose track of and lose the ability to reconnect to that pure joy, euphoria, freedom that they had as children. And so this sort of tragedy and this issue was going to be at the crux of our adventure. And P- Pam was just a way for us to enter into that mythology without having to spend a ton of time explaining how the world worked. How um, how comfortable with the story even were your young Actors Like, do they know the Peter Pan mythology? I mean, the funny thing, and I, I think this is true, I think there are very, very few people that really know the story of Peter Pan as it exists yeah. in the original text. Or, you know, there's so many versions of it, but they all depart radically from that original text. And what we realized in ourselves and, and also, you know, um, we think in audiences and certainly for our kids is everybody just knows Peter. You know, you just know that mm-hmm. character. And you don't, for us, it was like, we didn't know, he didn't look like Disney's Peter. He didn't, everybody has their own Peter. He looks like little kids have an imaginary friend that's Peter Pan. And he is, when you're little, he's the hero of not growing up, you know? And then as you right, get older, right. he becomes this like mischievous pixie that tells you to jump over the fence with a no trespassing sign on it and never go to bed and break the rules and get in trouble, you know? And he becomes this kind of like uh, god of mischief. And then, as we entered into making this film, it was interesting because our interest had shifted from making this movie about escaping with Peter to thinking about what it's like to be Wendy who goes to the Neverland but then has to leave. And then how do you kind of come back to the real world and not lose this Neverland inside of you? And that question mm-hmm. became the central question that we wanted to attack. How did you guys wrestle with um, even just the means of getting Wendy to Neverland? I don't want to spoil anything or reveal much, (laughs) but you have a method in a way that it makes it feel like Neverland could be nearby, you know, that it is accessible. Yeah. And we wanted to bring that. That was something really important to us. We didn't want this film to be about escaping from the world. We wanted it to be Mm -hmm. about a larger than life world, but that one that you could get to like anywhere you see in this film. Like you can get a plane ticket tomorrow and you can go there. And if you're <laughs> ready to walk off the road, hike two miles up a volcano, you can get to the Neverland that you see <laughs> in my film. And it looks exactly like it does. Um, and, and, and certainly we took that principle to, you know, we wanted to get rid of anything that, that was like fairy magic that made it just feel like, oh, this is not for me. You know, we imagine watching the film as a kid. It's like, okay, well, 
the first thing you figure out as a kid is that you can't fly. You're like at some point you jump off the roof with an umbrella and you figure that out real fast, you know? And so we, we want to take that out of the story, this idea that you would just fly away and just think of something equally as crazy, equally as brave, um, equally as larger than life. And, you know, for me, uh, I just remember stories like the boxcar children when I was, when I was little and just thinking that, you know, uh, the train is this incredible sort of symbol and, and, um, you know, mythological idea in Americana. And also I think the other reason the trains sort of became a huge part of it is like living in new Orleans, uh, it's where all the trains go. And so all Mm -hmm. night long, you just have trains moving and you don't know where they're coming from. You don't know where they're going. And it just seems like the portal to another far off world. And so there was something about the train that felt like a portal that calls to this character of Wendy. She lives inches from a train track. And so her whole life is just this huge monster going by to somewhere unknown. And and that just drives her wild. And so, you know, those are some clues, but you know. Yeah. Well, um, and I'll mention just when it comes full circle uh, in your film, my heart swelled out of my chest. (laughs) It's just, but I won't, we'll leave that for people to discover. Uh, There's also an amazing line too, about when they're first going to Neverland, how they pass, I'm going to paraphrase it. uh, They leave all the houses of the people who who got too scared to to keep going, you know, essentially. And I think that that mood is is really set by your film. It's really wonderful. Um, because of this and the way that you're describing your process, and I love hearing about how you approached it, you're working with kids, um, you're going to a location, you, you're almost figuring out as you go or, or maybe even reacting to things that you're finding or things that the kids are giving you. Yeah. How loosely structured then is the screenplay? I mean, I'm sure there's there's things that you need to get to, there's beats you want to hit. How much freedom do you leave yourself to pivot and change as you're putting everything together? Um, massively, massively, particularly in pre-production. I think once we start shooting, it's there's more of a plan and, you know, uh, you're not shooting, you know, the nature of this film is there's no way we could have shot in sequence. It's like you have to shoot when the sea conditions are exactly right and you go get that scene and then you wait for the volcano to be doing the right thing and go get go to the <laughs> volcano you get that you're, you're really at the mercy of nature when you shoot like this um right, right. and uh, but but in pre-production certainly though i mean the whole method is really based on you know assembling kind of a loose framework in a script and we, we write the whole thing you know but just being totally open to change you know and every person you find every place you find these are like discoveries for me. And, and then as I learn about people, as I learn about places, those ideas get written into the script. Um, and on the characters in particular with the kids, you know, are, are really collaborations between me and, and each of these kids in order to kind of get the character to make sense to them, to express their voice in a way that they're comfortable with. Um, and you just learn an immense amount about, uh, about your story by meeting, by meeting these kids, you know, um, I think one, I mean, just an example of this is, you know, when we wrote this version of Peter, you know, uh, he had all this amazing stuff to say. Like he was just like, just wisdom was just coming out of his mouth. He was making speeches. He had these declarations of purpose and he was always like, you know, he had these huge things to say. And then when I met Yashua, um, who plays the character and I hung out with him and he has a pack of friends, like 15 deep, and they just roll through the forest all day long playing and one game turns into the next. And what I realized is that no one stops long enough to listen to someone make a speech. If someone starts making a speech, the other kids are already run, have run away into the next game. You know? <laughs> right, and so we right, had right. to kind of take his philosophy and make it not as verbal, you know, to have it really spoke by his actions um, and by his play and by his physicality. And he's still obviously 
at moments opens up and really speaks in the film, but it takes a lot for that to happen with a kid whose agenda is really about fun, you know, and, and right. thrills. And so things like that, and that's true of every character, really radically reshaped who the people are and how the, how the film works. Now, on the flip side, what did you need out of your Wendy when you were looking to counterbalance what you were getting out of Peter? We were looking for, I mean, the central question of the film, you know, um, I, I can like trace it back to this line that's in Peter Pan that I think probably just like traumatized me as a child, um, <clears throat> where he says, the only ones who can fly are the, the gay, the innocent and the heartless. <clears throat> and the word heartless always sort of felt so cutting and stuck out to me. And, and this thought of like, well, if I really want to experience total freedom, if I want to fly, if I want to be pure joy and be the happiest man alive, like, do I have to also be heartless? Does that mean that I can't care about others? Does that mean that I have to let go of my friends? That mean I have to let go of my family and just be alone as Peter Pan is, you know? And so meeting Devin and sort of, she has this incredible like fusion of these two qualities where she's wild and feisty and brave and daring. At the same time, she has so much heart and she loves so deeply and purely and passionately. She takes care of people and, you know, seeing that you seeing that she refuses to make that choice and that sacrifice and that she can find sort of incredible freedom within loving so deeply, you know, was a real inspiration for this character and kind of like carries forward the themes and the lessons of the movie. I'm floored by the courage of this young cast. Yeah. I mean, they honestly seem to rise to the challenge of everything that you asked of them emotionally and physically and just naively <laughs> I would worry that their, you know, their youth and their inexperience would almost hinder you from achieving some of your loftiest goals. But it seems like the complete opposite of that ends up being true. Yeah, in some ways. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, and, and you know, these are the most extraordinary kids. Like we look, we search for years to try to find people like this. And and they and they and they got brave as we did it. It's like we, we you know, it's not like it's not like day one of the shoot these kids could have leapt from a roof onto a moving train, but by <laughs> day 40, they did just that, you know? Um, and, and I must also say, you know, the, the film is designed to look incredibly dangerous when obviously we would never put a kid in harm's way in any kind of way. Um, you know, and a lot of trickery was involved in order to get those things to feel like they were totally out of control. Um, but that said, um, you're right about just the courage of the children and, 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 and how much they, uh, they rose to the occasion to face just, you know, things that adults would be terrified to do. And, you know, but, you know, I mean, but also they were fun. You know, I mean, like we, we picked kids who would run away with Peter Pan. That was our first question is like, would this kid, if Peter showed up at his window, jump out the window and go off to Neverland? And, and that was true of every kid in the movie. That was true of every adult in the movie. It was true of almost everyone that actually made the film. We shared this sort of. Uh, call to adventure and fearlessness. And, and, and that was the culture of the film. And we did things that, you know, um, shocked ourselves as well as others, I think, you know. Are all of these kids uh, licensed deep sea divers now at this point? <laughs> I mean, part of the reason the film took so long, honestly, is we had to break for a year to teach everybody to swim. Because um, some of them we met and they just didn't know how to swim. And, you know, beyond just learning how to swim, they had to learn how to act underwater, which is one of the most challenging things. Um, you could do. And, and especially for Devin France, who played Wendy, you know, she worked long and hard. When we started, she didn't open her eyes when she swam. And then by the end, she's able to express the most complicated emotions on her face as she's underwater. 
Um, and, um, you know, she, she's a miraculous human being. I, I can't say it any, any other way. Y'all are going to hopefully see her play a lot of amazing roles over the course of her life. Ben, her eyes are the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my entire life. I mean, they yeah. tell stories with, you know, with, without any words. Yeah. You had to realize that you lucked into something extremely uh, special when you saw the visuals of just the way her eyes are so deep. Yeah, you know, and, and it's something that I learned from from Beast as well because there was a similar quality to Quivengene where without saying anything, she could express so much. And the littlest nuances of her feeling and her emotion would just were just right there in her eyes and you could just hold a camera on her and just watch it endlessly. And, De and the same is true of Devin. And, you know, where that comes from, I don't, where that comes from, I do not know, you know, that, that <laughs> is a power within. And, and we talk about it's, it's actually inspired a line in the film. Um, you know, there's a, there's a line, you know, all children grow up, um, except for some and the ones with the light in their eyes, those are the ones that escape. And, and that light in their, in her eyes is something that, yeah, it just, um, it's from another planet. I love the concept that you guys treat uh, age and aging almost as a, an infection, almost <laughs> like a, a disease. Yeah. Where did that, where does that originate from? It's a brilliant concept. <laughs> you know, I think that honestly dates back to games that me and my sister Eliza would play when we were small children. Like uh, we, we, we lived inside of this one game that we called the never ending game that really could be anything, you know, but we were like, you want to play the never ending game. And that just meant, we're going to just enter another world all day long. But the central rule of that world was that at 13, you were cast out because something <laughs> happens. What we could see is that something happens that would turn us into grownups. And whatever that was, was just the most horrible thing that we could imagine when we were children. And, you know, right. I think a lot of this film, which for no reason, you know, we have the most wonderful parents, like they're wonderful <laughs> examples of how to live an adventure your entire life. Um, but we were terrified and, you know, um, we wanted to play with that idea, you know, uh, you know, that for children, it, it's like it's like an affliction that suddenly your body starts to warp in all sorts of horrific ways. And you stop being able to feel happiness and you st you stop wanting to climb a tree or jump in the water. You know, like what what is this horrible thing? You know, right, and then hopefully right. over the course of the film, you know, really Wendy's purpose and her role is to solve this problem and to and to say, to figure out how to grow up and have it not be something that just takes away everything that you love as a child, but actually to have it be a, a way that your life deepens and that your adventure um, goes from being something you imagine to something that's real. And like, if you can live that way, there's a way to grow up without it just um, destroying you. I'm going to uh, assume that by the, for making this movie, you've almost come to terms with a little bit of this personal fear. Is that true? Or are you still wrestling with some of this stuff? Well, that's why I made it. You know what I mean? Like I could see the tides turning, you know, I mean, it was, it was, a, it was a huge, obviously shift in my life. Um, you know, the, the exposure around beast, like was a radical change in my world. You know, I really had been making art and films in a sort of Neverland my entire life and trying to kind of escape from the world and just use every loophole to not have to engage with practical choices or responsibility of any kind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I did sense that that was going to change. And, and I also sensed that I had to change because if I didn't, um, I was going to be alone because everybody else was, you know, saw something else, you know? And, and I think that, um, I think that, uh, you know, for me, it was, it was, it was a, the question of the film of how to, how to, how to be, how to be totally free 
and then also find that freedom within caring, within love and within connection uh, to your friends, to your family. Like that was a real mission for me. And, and I do think I've learned an immense amount on the journey of making the film. And, um, you know, and I, I wouldn't say that I've grown up, you know, it's like, I'm soon as this is done, I'm back into the woods, you know, to go on another adventure, but certainly like this sort of, um, growing how to, how to, how to not see that freedom and caring as sort of, uh, diametrically opposed forces is something that, um, that I, that I hope the film, I know the film taught to me and I, and I think it'll teach other people who go to see it. Oh, I leave both of your films feeling like you are somebody who does make sure to do at least one thing a day that connects you to your inner child, <laughs> at least <laughs> never let that light sort of snuff out. So no, that makes never. me really happy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you come from a creative family. Is is that is that something that creatives tend to hear? Like, when are you going to find a real job or are you going to have a backup job to sort of, you know, catch you should all this fall apart. Yeah. And you know, I have like pretty impractical parents, you know, my parents are both folklorists. They run a nonprofit organization. Like they never made, they never made choices, um, to, to sort of like practical choices. And we, we lived inside that culture, but even with my parents, you know, I think especially early on, you know, when I was just like running up credit cards to make films with absolutely no plan and, you know, just, uh, going places by myself, you know, with no house, no, you know, like just taking incredible chances, you know, uh, even in my family, my mom at some point was like, you know, you, you might have to do something else at some point. Um, and, uh, but you know, I do think it is, it is like, a a refrain for artists. I think it's a refrain for anybody that, um, you know, just wants to live on their own terms, you know, and, and, and sort of prioritizes, joy and freedom and adventure, you know, um, over stability, you know, I think that the world tells you, uh, that it can't sustain itself, that you're going to change, uh, that your priorities will change. They'll tell you you're going to grow up. They'll tell you that, um, the things you want to do aren't possible. Um, and you know, um, I think it's important that we be defiant of that. And I, and I wish that people didn't teach children those things because those are the things that where we, uh, we start to limit, um, the frontiers of who we can be as people. And, and I think we should always be reaching for the impossible and dreaming and our ambitions should be things that seem like they can't be done. Like that's how we break new grounds and that's how we inspire ourselves and each other. I think I might know the answer to this one, but should a big studio come to you then with a project <laughs> where they're, it, you know, it's not something quite as personal or Maybe it has a release date that you'd have to work towards. That that doesn't interest you at all. It doesn't. No. Um, you know, I I, I make films because I love movies, obviously, and I and I obviously like want to make as many of them as I can in my life. Um, but you know, the process and the experience of doing it the way that I I've done it is my life. Like I don't have another life outside of that. I don't have priorities that exist outside of um, the desire to make these films and and do them in this way that I go on an incredible journey with my best friends and go to places that I've dreamed of being. And, you know, um, that's not how films get made in Hollywood. You know, it's a much more controlled and structured process and the goals are different. You know, our goal was to make this film and to make it as every bit as wild and beautiful as we could. Um, and, and you know, that, that doesn't change. That's my life. So 
Well, that, you know, that makes me torn because I want the new Ben Zeitlin in, in a theater every two years, unfortunately. <laughs> and yet if it takes you years to come up with something like this, I'm, I guess I'm going to have to get used to that and, and afford you the time. So, uh, I know that we're at the end of the interview, man, and you're the last one of the day. So I just want to appreciate you for uh, taking the time and, and for delivering this wonderful movie. I was so happy to talk to you about it. Um, thank you so much for, for appreciating it. And uh, it's been great to be here. All right. Thanks, Ben. Talk to you soon. All right. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to wait to give a full-on review of Wendy because, A, Jake is seeing it right after we record uh, the episode this week. And not that there's, like, spoilers for the the Peter Pan narrative. It's, it's very much a Peter Pan movie. Um, but I also want to wait until more people are able to see it. Um, but I will say, please go out of your way to see it. It's a fantastic fantastic movie. Um, I, I was really curious to see what Ben Zeitlin was going to do next and whether he was going to be able to maintain the aesthetic that he brought to Beasts of the, Beast of the Southern Wild. And um, if you weren't able to see that one, he shot it in uh, rural Louisiana. And the, the term that everybody kept using was like magical realism because it followed this girl named Hush Puppy and her father was sick and there was a, a hurricane coming and it tapped into some like more emotion than straight up narrative storytelling. And he brings that approach to the Peter Pan narrative. And it was one of those things where, and Jake, you'll see it afterwards. I want you to text me after. There are specific elements from the Peter Pan story that, that while I was watching Wendy, I just forgot that they need to surface. And then when, when he introduced them in a very unique way, I was like, oh, right, this is a Peter Pan movie. Like, I was so swept up in the narrative of it uh, and the way that he brings around the origins of, of very iconic things, uh, I think you're going to find really, really interesting. So I, I loved it. I think it's really great. So when Wendy plays at a theater near you guys, please make sure that you uh, go see it and then hit us up on social and tell us what you thought of this interview. Um, talking points. So it's been a while, uh, but we did not get a chance yet to discuss Matt Reeves taking to social media and doing something now that Warner Brothers has done twice in a row. And I kind of want your opinions on what you guys think about this. Using costume tests uh, as a way to reveal. So Birds of Prey did it first. And Kathy Yan talked about it in our interview that they didn't do like a, a trailer, for say. They just had the cast together in their outfits for the first time. And they used that as their opening bit of of marketing. Uh, Joker did it too, essentially, when Todd yep. Phillips finally worked out the makeup uh, with Joaquin. That's what they showed on Instagram. So we get the first look at Robert Pattinson briefly. I mean, we see the chin and the cowl. Um, two things. One, what did you guys think of the look? And secondly, what do you think about the fact that they use now costume tests and not like a trailer that shows off a bit of what the movie is going to be uh, as, as their first steps into the world of marketing. Uh, from what I could make of the look, I thought it looked pretty cool. I mean, I'm going to be completely honest. It's bathed in red. Yeah. And, and even then someone took the, the video and sort of turned it black and white so you can get somewhat of, of, of a feel for it. I still don't feel like I quite know enough about what it looks like. If I'm being completely honest, like yeah. I can't tell you enough about what it looks like to decide one way or the other based on what I could kind of make out. I mean, whenever, because this video dropped when I was on a plane. So whenever I landed, I, I saw everyone's reactions, which was like, oh my God, it's the greatest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> I kept looking at this video going, what the hell do you got? I, I can't see anything. The one thing that, and we don't even know if it's confirmed yet, the idea of the bat symbol being made out of the gun that killed his parents. If that is in fact true, uh, that would be really badass. And I think that's pretty metal. Um, I Based on what I could make out of the video, it seems pretty cool. Um, I think that they're releasing these things because they know pretty soon paparazzi are going to start snapping photos, and uh, and and they don't. And it's a way to control it, right? 
Yeah, I think so. I think someone actually tweeted, I guess that means they're going to prepare for some out, outdoor shots. So the yeah. costumes can become pretty visible. Yeah, I, I dug the, I dug it. I think Matt Reeves, I'm just so happy that he's involved in it. Uh, I think Robert Pattinson's such a perfect choice for the character. Do I, did I like the reveal? Of course I did. I thought it was a great idea. Uh, I liked the red. I thought it was interesting. I thought it was unique. I thought it was a great way to get the, to get a tease out there for the audience. I mean, it didn't really reveal too much for me. Like I, 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 I don't necessarily want to see everything yet. I'm, 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 I'm I like that Matt Reeves is kind of taking us along the journey with him. And I think that I was rewatching Good Time the other day, just just thinking about dramatically how well I think Pattinson's going to do as Bruce Wayne and, and Batman. I think it's going to be I think it's such a perfect casting. Um, I mean, to this day, I still think Ben Affleck is hands down my favorite Batman to ever grace the screen. And I just you know, I, I wonder um, as a as a fan of Affleck's Batman, how comparable or how much I'm going to be comparing this in my mind, because Snyder's vision of. Batman, um, especially with the warehouse and the nightmare scene in BBS, I just I don't know that bat, that I, we will ever see a Batman that epic again on screen. And I, and I and I wonder, you know, Matt Reeves has something going for him in one way because BBS was such a divisive film that people didn't necessarily love BBS. So he really kind of has that angle to grow on. But for people like me and people who are fans of BBS and people who loved Affleck's Batman, um, I I have trouble understanding how somebody's going to top the warehouse, the Batmobile sequence and the uh, the nightmare scene and the Batman Superman fight in BVS. And I just I'm interested to see how it's going to play. I, I, I'm very curious. I'm open minded. And Reeves uh, Reeves is amazing. Jaquino being on board makes me happy. And a little tease for next week. We're going to have Lee Winnell on the show, uh, who is the uh, director of The Invisible Man and obviously the amazing movie Upgrade. Uh, and the trailer came out. Right, the teaser came out right when I was interviewing him for our show, so he reacts to it live. Now Lee's not connected to Batman, but it was just cool to get a director's perspective on kind of what he thought about in live time watching the reaction video. Oh, because everybody's a fan. Everyone's a fan, you know. Yeah, they all yeah. want to see that stuff when it drops. What, I'm sorry, Jakey, what were you saying? No, I was just saying that was a great idea on Kevin's part to ask him. It, it was actually it was him because he comes in the room, and he sits down. I'm like, dude, did you see? Yeah, I was like, did you see the? Uh, the Batman footage yet? And he goes, no. I was like, and he pulls it up and just starts watching it live on our in our in our interview. But I mean, listen, I, I understand that people are probably gonna have a problem with me saying Affleck is my favorite Batman or the best Batman. But oh, I don't I, think so. I, I just think that um, people will really kind of love Bale and Keaton, and I get that. But I just think that uh, I, I part of me it's really sad for me to think that we didn't get to get Affleck's directed and starring Batman. Um, I, I, that, that part of that lingers in me still, because I was really looking forward to that. And I was, I was, he might've even gone R rated, which would have been amazing. Uh, they could have obviously with the Joker's success and, uh, films like that. So it, it's one of those things where we are so in the know about movie making and the under and the things behind the scenes that those things do catapult our mind a little bit, but the average moviegoer, and I don't mean that in a bad way, it just doesn't follow these particular stories. So they're they're watching the Batman film just from a perspective of, oh, this is another Batman movie. Um, but it's going to be hard. I mean, I, I, I got to set that aside. But could you imagine what Affleck's movie would have looked like? I mean, I, I would just want to see that It'd version. It'd be a great, a great script to get your hands on. You know, Man. It's got to be out there somewhere. Um, you're burying a little bit of the lead, too. Uh, Michael Giacchino's first bit of music from the Batman. Oh. And, and honestly, 
that was my takeaway. Uh, I yeah. found myself seventies vibe humming though, you know, that music for a day or two afterwards too. And, uh, and then of course, Matt Reeves tweets afterwards. I can't wait for everybody to hear the whole thing. Well, no kidding. <laughs> Neither can we. I'm super excited. I wish they did one quick, um, pull back wide to show. Cause there's a couple of things like, I want to know how long the Cape is. I want to know what the symbol looks like on his chest. There's so many different ways they could do the chest. I want to know how tall the ears are. Like stupid little things like that. I thought they showed the chest. Didn't they show the symbol on the chest? Oh, well, they you, did. Yeah, they that did. Was the whole, right. That was the whole deal where they, they people think it's that's the gun. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. They but did this show is, the chest. But the reason why they didn't show you all that is exactly what we're doing right now on this show. We're talking about it. And yeah. we're saying we want other things. And, you know, to me, like, yes, I would love to have seen the full-blown costume. Um, what was... What was I was trying I was saw this the other day. Someone actually screenshotted all the reveals of the Batmans over the years. Okay. So I'm trying to remember. So Affleck's reveal was the one with his head down yeah. by the Batmobile. Right. right? That, that gray was, shot. Right. And then I'm trying to I think Nolan's reveal of Bale was it didn't seem super impressive. I, I remember looking at it and going, ah, oh, that was that's fine. But again, that was but remember probably, even then when it I mean like pre yeah, pre-Batman begins. It wasn't as crucial because, you know, not not that like the Internet wasn't around, but like it wasn't like we, we didn't have smartphones really at the time. Like we weren't sharing pictures. It wasn't as, you know, if a picture had leaked, it wasn't instantly going to be on everyone's phone in 30 right. minutes. Seeing yeah. Keaton, though, the Keaton reveal is pretty cool. I mean, it's how so, do they do that? It's just him standing there. But like, but I, I mean, at least in the photo that I saw, it was it was a, it was a tweet about like the four different reveals. And. You know, it's interesting because Sean mentions the uh, the Joker and how they did that. I love these camera tests, and I love that that Warner Brothers is embracing that type of idea. So, yeah, I'm, listen, I'm all in. I've been in on Pattinson since Good Time. He ha- he is such a brilliant actor. Uh, and if you haven't seen Good Time to anybody listening to our show, do yourself a favor and change it's on that Netflix right now. now. Right? It's, it's amazing. It looks great on Netflix too. It's, it streams beautifully on netflix well as much as we highly recommend good time and honestly go see that right now we cannot recommend the next film that we're going to speak of uh kevin and i lost a bet (laughs) if you were uh, missing out on a previous episode the one right after the oscars uh we had a wager which i now in hindsight really really regret making (laughs) where (laughs) the winner of the of the contest whoever got the most oscar uh, guesses correct would be able to choose a movie that the other two had to watch and bring uh, to review for the show. And I'm even going to take this one step further. So Jake won and then doubled down by picking a movie that I brought up in conversation as an example of here's a horrific movie I would choose. <laughs> and Jake was like, so be it. You two are going to watch The Human Centipede Part 3. Uh, and, and to because our credit, one wasn't enough. Well, to our credit, uh, Kevin and I both did it. We did it, uh, yesterday at various Together. times. I tweeted my way through half of it. Uh, we texted our way through it and, and here's our review. <laughs> Thanks to Jake of human centipede three. Kevin, you want me to start? You go, buddy. I, I'm still, I'm still kind of <laughs> angry about it to be a hundred percent honest. <laughs> it is. And, and I mean, I, this is there's no hyperbole here. There's no exaggeration. It's the worst thing I've ever seen in my entire life. And it's not even like there are quant qualities that you associate with a movie that like this doesn't have. It's you're watching visuals for an hour and 45 minutes, but it's not a movie. You can't call it a movie. There's nothing coherent about it. The performances 
are, if you could call them that, so off the charts bad. Like there are, there's amateur and then there's, there's like whatever below that is what's happening in Human Centipede. Um, there's no story for the entire story, for the entire two hour story. There's a warden in a prison who is just doing the meanest, most despicable things he can think of to the inmates. Um, and it's a series of just, they do something really bad to him. He re- recuperates or, or, or uh, uh, what am I trying to say? Uh, retaliates. Retaliates is where I'm trying to go with. With something even worse. And, and each one is an escalation of just like how much more horrible they can get. And I don't, I can't even describe on the show what some of these things are. Kevin put them in the text chain. Jake refused to click on. The I didn't lose. I don't have to watch that shit. Um, and it just gets, it just grows and grows. But during the entire bit of inmate does something horrible, warden retaliates. And the actor who plays the, I can't, I can't even call him an actor. The, the man who plays the warden is the worst person I've ever seen on screen in any movie, bar none. He can't act. I don't think he knows what movie he's in. It's just, it's it's mind-boggling to watch. And, and then over the course of the rest of the movie, his sidekick is trying to convince him in a very meta way that the only way to punish these guys that will make them stop behaving the way that they're behaving is to implement the human centipede that he has learned through the two human centipede movies. The two human centipede movies are a plot point in human centipede three. Like the sidekick has watched the two movies and has said, you should do what they do in these movies to the, to the inmates. And then the director shows up as himself and to say, here's how we do it. And to, to explain to them that it's scientifically possible to do it, he cameos as himself, as himself in the movie. It gets way meta in a way I didn't expect, but it doesn't make it any better. Uh, it is it is a zero star film. It is it is as unwatchable as unwatchable gets. And I'm with Kevin. I kind of hate Jake for making me sit. This makes it. me so happy. <laughs> it was so. You have bad. no idea. Like, it, like I would have if you had come back with like, yeah, it really wasn't that bad. I yeah. would have been genuinely disappointed. This is exactly yeah what I wanted to hear, Kevin. What frustrates me about this is that <laughs> <laughs> is that Jake recommends a film he's never seen, and so he's never has, going so, to watch. So, so there's actually no weight at all to his recommendation because right. he doesn't understand what he's putting the viewer through. So unless he read through the descriptions of what the movie did, nope. um, I don't think that Jake's delivery of giving us that movie is as impactful as we're saying it is. Meaning I that- don't know. I don't, I don't need to, to, to jump out of my 13th floor, uh, 13th floor window and plummet to the ground to know it's going to suck at the end. <laughs> it's, it's not about the movie being bad though. So here, yeah. here, this is an interesting thing. There's a, there's a line some films cross very few have crossed it where the film is no, it's not a movie. It is genuinely, it's not entertainment. It's genuine torture. Um, and so this film, and I, and I exaggerate a lot in my life and I, I am a very hyperbolic person cause I get so excited about certain things. Um, this film, I could see a judge 
giving this film to somebody versus a harsher sentence for a crime they've committed. Like having them sit in front of this movie and watch it yeah. versus serving time in prison. That's how disturbing and nasty the film is. And I, it's funny because I, I am a little mad at Jake, to be 100% honest, because like, that's not, it, it, like, it took away, it wasn't even fun. It wasn't no, fun. It wasn't fun. It wasn't a fun it was, thing. It wasn't supposed to be fun for you. You lost. But I was kind of hoping to come on here and, like, you know, joke about it. There's nothing in this movie to joke about. I, 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 I honestly. Think it's, I think this is very funny. I can't even. <laughs> I can't well, wait, even. Wait, wait, wait. What was that bullshit you were going to have us watch then? I wouldn't have put you through something like that. I mean, I would I would have put you through something I'd seen before. But um, that, that movie that, that you kept saying that... Irreversible? That you, I wouldn't have yeah. given you that because I hadn't seen it. I haven't finished oh, it. Oh, now I feel like a dick then. No, no, no. no. And, and, and listen, I, I'm, I'm, I'm playing this because I... And I, and I truly mean this because it is... It is honestly, like as Sean said, the worst visual thing I've ever experienced in Did my Lauren life. Did Lauren watch it with you? No. At one point... Um, so I had to pause the movie... Four times, I think, because there was a point in the, the, I, each time it, there was a point where the movie got so disgusting and so disturbing that I my and this is this is not a joke. My feet started feeling weird. Like my whole body just felt weird because like it, I don't think my mind I don't think anyone's brain is supposed to process the imagery that we caught on camera here. Yeah. And and to Tom Six's credit, the effects are so realistic looking <laughs> that. It doesn't like like Sean put a makes a great point. It's not you're not watching a movie. It almost yeah. seems like you're watching someone's footage yeah. of some snuff thing that they yeah. made, and they're just like splicing these moments together. I mean, there there are three to four scenes that are I, I wish I've never seen. I wish I can erase from my mind. <laughs> yes, I, I I don't understand why mm -hmm. anybody would ever think to put that on film or on video um is it made and i don't I hope this comes out the right way is it made to be finished or is it made to see how long the viewer can go before they stop oh no right? it's made to be finished because you have to make it to the end and it's funny because like like you're you're sitting there watching it and i mean the like like sean was saying and this is actually interesting i thought this was i thought this was kind of clever um about how the movie the movie opens on a shot i believe of, of the ending of human centipede 2 then cuts out to a guy who's then watching Centipede 2, and that guy who's watching Centipede 2 is the guy from Centipede 1, and then it jumps back, and then now we're in the present day of the third <coughs> film. Yeah. So you... That's, I mean, like, that's way too much effort for... I know. The third but human centipede. One thing about this movie that really bothered me is just how mean it is. It's so um, mean. It's racist. It's sexist. It's oh, horrifyingly God. violent. Um, it is... It is... It, that movie should be illegal. I remember years ago, my buddy buddy of mine, when I was growing up with, there was a movie called Cannibal Holocaust, I think was the name of the film. It was like right. a trauma film or whatever. And I think that was the same film that was so brutally violent that they, had, they, took, the, they took the directors and cast to court to prove that no one was actually murdered in the movie. Wow. I remember reading, uh, my buddy Chris uh, told me this story when I was growing up. I actually never looked up, looked it up to see if it was like true or not, but I, look it up. I think it's called Cannibal Holocaust. And I think it was the film that they actually had to bring to court to prove that no one was killed in the film. Like I, I don't understand like how they pulled off some of this stuff. There is, there are legitimate shots overhead of at least a hundred guys, right. <laughs> that are in a full blown human centipede, <laughs> With, with the digestive track in full motion as we watch it 
swindle through. I'm trying, I'm desperately trying to think of a scene that I could describe in detail that would give you an implication. And as I rifle through the library of, of scenes that you made us watch, I can't think of a single one that is, that is like close enough that I can describe it using words that would dance around the horribleness of there's none. There's none. There's not a single scene. So when next year? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Enough about human centipede three. We honestly have given this movie more time than we give our normal movie reviews. Thank you so much, Jake, for making us watch that vile, vile trash. When Um, next year? Yeah, I guess that's the motivation to it. We're having a different, a different (laughs) uh, prize during the Oscar con, or I'm just not going to come in for the uh, the Oscar recap (laughs) episode. I would prefer to do nothing than see that again. Uh, This Week in Movies. This one I know uh, is a real movie. It stars uh, Kirsten Stewart. Kirsten? Kristen? Dude, you do this for a living. K-Stew? It's called Seaberg. Seaberg? (laughs) I've seen Seaberg. It was in Toronto? It was in Toronto. All right. Uh, The Night Clerk. Limited release... The Night Clerk. Bueller. All right. <laughs> Brahms, The Boy too. <laughs> now that's a movie. I at least I know what that is. Yes. That's a movie. Yes. Haven't seen it. No, nothing. All right. All right. Oh, how about The Call of the Wild? Anyone hey, seen Call of the Wild? Kevin and I have seen that. All right. I saw that. Give, give us your review of The Call of the Wild, and then I want to hear what it's like to sit down and interview Mr. Harrison Ford. Um, you know, I don't know if this is like a, the most glowing endorsement, but it was significantly better than I thought it was going to be. Um, it okay. kind of reminded me of some of those like live action adventure films that Disney made kind of some in the 50s with like a Swiss Family Robinson or even as early like as, as most recent as like the 90s. Like, like Kevin, I think Kevin and I grew up with White Fang. So it kind of reminded me of that. Um, it was definitely had a, the, the, the CGI buck added sort of a Disney element, almost a borderline. And I don't mean this as a slight, but it's not a, it's not a compliment either. Uh, a borderline cartoonish element to it in the sense that this CGI dog, this motion capture dog, the CGI dog, uh, it was human in the sense that it could almost understand everything every human was saying. Um, I think, you know, that there may have even been a scene where like, you know, someone says something to Buck and he rolls his eyes, you know, like, you know, and, you know, a dog that, Oh, you know, no. a, a dog that you meet for the first time, you know, is you're not going to be able to say like, you know, don't take this thing. And then the, and the you know, and then the dog's going to listen to you or you say like, you know, Buck, go out there and get me this thing. And he's going to go out and get it for you. It's just it just doesn't happen. And so it, it would have been one thing if you had had the dog do it, but it was a real dog and you trained the dog to do it. Then you could sort of go, well, OK, at least they trained the dog. A CGI dog doing impossible things just really added this this cartoonish element. That being said. I thought Harrison was great. The adventure, I mean, the, like the, the the action sequences were a lot of were a lot of fun. I was never bored. Uh, there are very there are quite a few like visually gorgeous moments. And uh, and to sweep back to Harrison Ford, I, you know, there I feel like there Harrison Ford has two uh, modes: doesn't care and cares. Um, and <laughs> this this is a movie that I would say he actually cared and gave a, a, a pretty damn good performance. I'm gonna bring up something and I'm gonna ruin movies for you guys because someone ruined movies for me a long time ago. <clears throat> why would you do that? Well, just this one aspect. <laughs> I want to bring why, up this why, one. Why would you do that? <laughs> I want to bring up one aspect about um, it, when you're watching a bad movie. Uh, the the Daily Film critic at, at the Charlotte Observer, his name is Lawrence Topman, uh, helped me out tremendously when I moved to Charlotte and got me onto all the media lists and everything. And he and I would talk. He and I would talk for 
hours upon hours after we watched movies for years upon years. Super nice guy, really helped me out. One thing that he pointed out to me that that was the bane of his existence was in a lazy comedy when they didn't know what to do and they cut to an animal reaction shot. And so anytime he saw it, I would physically hear him groan in the screening. He would go, oh, like like, <laughs> like he was pained. And now I can't not see a, a lazy animal reaction shot when there's supposed to be a punchline or some such moment where the dog like turns and looks at the camera and it's supposed to be the laugh line and it has ruined so many I, I don't think Call the Wild ever gets to, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think it ever gets to that point where it's like borderline slapstick. Right. But it, it just, I, I mean that in the sense of like the dog just does a lot of things that, that and I here's the deal. If it's between using a CGI dog or putting a real dog yeah. in danger, which we've seen in the past few years, what happened with someone like the dog was a dog's purpose, or the dog's life or the dog's way or whatever, where they had like yeah. the dog drowning in the river. If it's between the two, I choose CGI dog every day. Don't put a freaking dog in danger to make a movie. It's not worth it. So, I mean, if I'm choosing between the two, but there, there, there are just certain moments where I was like, you probably could have had a real dog there, but, but there are a lot of moments where you couldn't have had a real dog. And I feel like you probably couldn't have gone back and forth between the two. It would have been too jarring. So they, they had to pick one or the other. Kev, did it work for you? I mean, I thought it was fine. I mean, my, my issue with the film was the CGI dogs. Um, uh, like, and it, it's funny because like the other day I was doing a segment about the movie and my anchors and on my station, they're, they're not like, they're not big into filmmaking. They're just, they just love going to the movies and they're just, you know, they, they have fun watching the films. They're not really into the talk about CGI and things like that. Um, I play a clip of the film and two of my anchors automatically go, wait, is that dog CGI? Like, like out of nowhere, they said that. And they, and they never comment on the effects like that. Um, it's jarring uh, beyond belief, to be honest, at times. Um, so much so that the human beings have less emotional range than the dogs do because the dogs are almost human. Like the dogs really are human. Um, like Buck is to me played like a human being. Yeah. It was very much like a Chewbacca, like, not Chewbacca's human, but like, like there was, there was enough of an understanding between Harrison Ford and Buck that I felt like two adults were just hawking. Um, and I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, I think <laughs> I think Harrison Ford is great in the film. I, I think he his emotional range he's very good. I, I think the backstory for his character they gave him I thought was very well done. Um, it's not a bad movie by any means, but the CGI took me out of the film every time the Buck was on screen. At one point though, you start getting adjusted to the CGI and you think you're watching an animated movie, and then a, and then a, and then a physical person shows up. And then you reminded you're watching a live action film with just CGI dogs. And, you know, I, I will say this. I want to give Terry Notary some credit. Um, I think Terry Notary, actors like Terry Notary, act actors like Andy Serkis are just so, they're not talked about enough. And I think the work that these guys are bringing to performance capture and well, tell people, Terry Notary played Buck. He played right. The dog. So, so Terry Notary played Buck via basically via the same technology that Andy Serkis would have played Caesar in Planet of the Apes or Gollum in Lord of the Rings. Um, and so on set, which I really, really want to see video of this. There, there's um, a little Harrison, bit in the CBS Sunday Morning special that aired this week. There's like three seconds that you just can't help but laugh of Harrison Ford 
rolling around with Terry. And that's the thing. It's like, like that's, that's, I would rather watch that personally than the CGI buck because I think, I think Terry notary really is the performance there. But the problem is it's so CG that you, I don't know. There, there's something to be said about what Terry brings to the character of buck. And it's like, it's the same type of human nature, in my opinion, that you got when you interacted with Caesar in, in the Planet of the Apes films. So if you can imagine Caesar and how human he was, that's kind of how Buck is portrayed. So if that doesn't bother you, that doesn't take you out of the movie, then then it's fine. I, I think that there's a great story here. I think uh, I love films about dogs. I love films about people changing each other's lives. Uh, I say people, even though Buck's a dog, because he was so human to me, in my opinion. Um, but you know, it, honestly, at some point, Buck could have started talking and it wouldn't have surprised me. That's how like human the character was. So, I mean, I, you know, I think the movie's fine. I think the CGI is a bit problematic. I don't think CGI is there yet for a dog to look fully photorealistic on screen uh, next to an actor. I just don't think, I mean, but what's weird is, and I just said that and I'm already going to uh, backtrack on that. The apes movies, those apes looked real, fully fully real yeah. hair, mouth, eyes, lips, teeth, everything was looked like I was looking at a photorealistic ape on screen. Um, and that's not how I thought about Buck. Now, I don't know if that's a technology standpoint. Uh, they use a different company. I don't know if, I don't think Weta was involved in this. I think Weta did the apes movies. So it's one of those things, right? Where like, if a person sits down and watches the movie and goes, is that a CGI dog? Is that a problem? Well, and I'll kind tell you of. what a badass Terry Notary is. Um, so do good. You guys, do you guys do the the Dawn of the Planet of the Apes? Yes. Junket in when, uh, San Francisco. Okay, so they did the Dawn of the Planet of the Apes junket in San Francisco. Um, and they had a junket set up with tents uh, so that your backdrop was the Golden Gate Bridge. And in one tent was Andy Serkis solo, obviously, because he's Caesar. Uh, in one tent, it was Gary Oldman, Kerry Russell. And uh, Jason uh, Clark. Yep. The three humans. And then the third tent was Terry Notary. And he was showing you with uh, his long sticks that he wears on his arms, like arm braces, to show you the length of the gorilla arms to, to mimic through. Like, that's he got his own junket space <laughs> to educate you on how he did the, the apes. Yeah, it was incredible. It if, was pretty incredible. If, for people out there uh, just listening to our show, look up Terry Notary, look up Ter- look up Andy Serkis. I mean, obviously, he's a much more well-known name, but, you know, it is an interesting thing. I, I like when a movie comes out like this because I feel like it gives those types of actors more recognition. And I love that Harrison Ford has been super great about mentioning Terry Notary because I just find that to be an interesting aspect to it. The movie's not bad. The movie's also not great. It's problematic, but I didn't mind it. It was fine. All right, let's get to the more important part. How are your interviews with Harrison? Jake, I think you said he was better than he ever had been before. Yeah, you know, Kevin and I have been lucky enough to have interviewed um, Harrison over over many times over the years. And And I've had not great, like I have, I've had interviews where I've walked out and thought he did not like me. Which is a bummer to have someone that, that played Indiana Jones and Han Solo. You walk out and you just go like, I just know he just didn't like me. Now, I've had pretty good interviews. I got to participate in the National Press Day for uh, Cowboys and Aliens. where like I, I was sitting, the setup was 
you're sitting in two lounge chairs in the middle of a field with horses running behind you. And in which case he was like very relaxed and he was cool, but it was also an element of like, that was like 10 years ago. So I wasn't arguably as, as good of a interviewer then as I'd like to think I am now. And so if I could have used my skills that I have today in that scenario, I think it would have been a much better interview, but it's been a few years since I've gotten him. So this is the first time in, in, in a couple of years since I've gotten him. And I just found him to be like very dry but still very funny. Like we, we covered a wide range of topics. I'd never in my entire life asked him a Star Wars question. And with this being the 40th anniversary of The Empire Strikes Back, I got to ask him uh, about what is my favorite line in the history of movies, which is, I know, after Princess Leia says, uh, I love you. And he, t- he gave me the great story about how he made that up. And that's, and that's where he, confu- where he uh, is explaining the scene to me and then says, you know, and, and Han Solo is about to be encased <laughs> in kryptonite. And he goes, you're, you're familiar with the scene. And in and, and, and that moment, I had the, the, one of the most in, like, intense internal debates of my life, which is, do I correct <laughs> Harrison Ford or do I let it go and then get ripped apart by fanboys online later for not being enough of a Star Wars fan to, to know that it wasn't kryptonite? But just because he took a beat and he took a pause, I just sort of go, you mean carbonite? And he goes, kryptonite, carbonite. I just work here. And, uh, and it was the most Harrison Ford, I'm so over Star Wars moment. But to his credit, he actually gave me a lengthy two-minute long answer about that scene, which is, is so great. And, and I even aired that clip today. And in that clip, we aired the clip of, of from Empire Strikes Back. And it's just such a great scene. And hearing him talk about it is just was so cool. And, and we talked about rescue dogs, which is do obviously— you know, Do you know what the line was supposed to be? It's supposed to be, I love you, too. It's supposed to be, I love you, too. Oh, okay. And then gotcha. he said, you know, Han Solo would never say that. Um, and then, you know, That's we cool. talked about rescue dogs, which was very important to me. We talked about, uh, the, the scar on his chin and the lie he tells people. And, and then, and then obviously, you know, mm-hmm. in, in last crusade, they gave river Phoenix a scene to justify where he got that scar from, where, you know, he was whipping, you know, using the, the whip at the lion and, you know, he whipped mm-hmm. himself in the face. And then what was ended up being my favorite moment, which is I had solicited fan questions specifically from, uh, Mark Hamill. And my favorite part of, of having this moment with Harrison Ford is that whenever I mention, all right, Harrison, I've got, I've got a fan question. You could just see the disgust in his face of like, <laughs> oh God, like I, and it was, I think it was maybe the second or third question I had for him. You could just tell he was ready because, you know, in, inevitably fan questions tend to not be great. They t- fan questions tend to be kind of sticky or very basic or, you know, what attracted you to the role or whatever. And you could just tell he was just, just ready to punch me in the face and then whenever I which hold on one second, which was another moment where this just goes to show how seasoned Jake is as a as a celebrity interviewer and how different, as you say, you were from 10 years ago, even because I watch that clip and he makes that face and you go, I already see you making the face. And then he has to sort of like justify it. He's like, I'm not I'm not making a face because he knows his reputation is bad. He was absolutely making a face. Yeah. He was but I love that you called him out on it. You had the courage to call him out and be like, I know what you're doing. I know you think this is going to be hacky, but. Well, only because I had, I knew I had a good follow up. Yeah. If, if I didn't you have a good follow up, I wouldn't have had the balls to do that. I can tell you that. But the follow <laughs> ended up being that the fan question was from Mark Hamill and, and the, the visible change that you can see in his face when he, yes. when he goes from, he thinks it's just going to be a hacky fan question from someone online to one of his longest running friends is asking him this cool question about him being cool uh was a really cool moment for and as a you guys know i don't have to tell anybody i'm a as a, you know a lifelong star wars fan to be able to say that i delivered a question to han solo from luke skywalker 
is uh, never something I'd ever thought I'd be able to, to say. So it was, I almost, Kevin and I were talking about this afterwards. I almost never want to interview him again because in the, in the grand scope of like how good he's ever going to be, it went so well that I almost want to end on that note. My favorite. Jake. Yeah. I can confirm for you. He does not want you to interview him. You know, and I get it. You know what's funny? My favorite reaction, my favorite comment that I got from someone was, congratulations. Uh, This was a good interview on a scale from one to 10. You only bothered him a seven. And I took that as like the ultimate cause. Like, you know what? You're right. And I will take that. (laughs) that's really funny that's very funny uh kevin how'd yours go good no that was awesome and i i just wanted to say it was so awesome to see jake walk out of that room just looking so happy because i knew what star wars meant to him and so for me like that that's kind of the highlight of the day for me was was really more about um how much i knew the interview meant to jake and how much i knew the interview and Star Wars meant to him. Uh, and I remember Jake and I were outside the room together about to go in. Uh, and we were like wondering, we were worried about like him being in a, in a if he was going to be in a bad mood or could we take a picture with him? And like that was, the, and we were all, the, all those worries went away because the Jake went in, did a great interview. And then as Jake leaves, he looked so relieved, which helped me when I walked in. Cause Kevin, cause Kevin followed me. Like I, I, I was walking out when Kevin was walking in. Yeah, and so like the relief on Jake's face and just how excited he was about it calmed me down and helped me walk into that room with a better um, uh, understanding that he was going to be more playful and more fun. And he was, he was, he was wonderful. And you know, my mom uh, reminded me, you know, early on that I that book was a big deal for me in high school, or I'm sorry, in middle school and high school. And so a couple of days before the interview, she sent me a copy of the book in the mail and uh, and, you know, to reread it, which I did partly on the plane on the way to the uh, the interview. And, yeah, he was so great about it. And uh, we talked about you know him in high school and uh, uh, the comparisons between Buck and Chewbacca. And he gave me, gave me a great uh, memory of Peter Mayhew. Uh, he talked a lot about Peter Mayhew and claims that he thinks Chewbacca speaks Chewbaccaian, which I don't, I don't, I don't know if that's a real, is that a, I don't know if that's a, is that, I don't know if that's what it's Doesn't really called. Doesn't he speak a Kashyyyk? Yeah, he, uh, Harrison Ford thinks it's called Chewbaccaian is what he calls it. Um, but the, the, in my opinion, I thought it was interesting. And, and that's kind of what I was saying in my review was about Buck was so human and he reacted to things such like a human being that it reminded me of the way Chewie and him would interact because while Chewie's not a human being, Chewie was, he was able to understand Chewbacca and Chewbacca was able to understand him. And that relationship back and forth was always interesting to me because like we never knew what Chewbacca said, but we would have to figure it out based on whether or not how the actors responded to it. Very much like Groot in Guardians, right? Like you, you know what Groot's saying based on the reaction from that. So he gave me a really interesting answer about uh, Mayhew and uh, how much of a dear friend he was and how sad he was that he had died a year ago. Um, and he just talked about um, that idea and that comparison. He, he never thought about the two being similar, but they kind of are because they're both speaking non-verbally, right? I guess technically speaking uh, to each other. So, uh, no, he was great. Uh, and uh, it just made me happy that Jake's interview went well. And, um, and uh, yeah, so it was, it was kind of a super big honor to talk to him, you know? Sometimes I think that that stuff produces the best jokes, like when um, an animal or someone speaks and no one knows what it is, but the human reacts to it. Yeah. And I just think of like Ron Burgundy yeah. with his yeah. dog. Yeah. <laughs> Baxter. Yeah. yeah well, but, and I, I know you guys don't like this movie, but one of my favorite jokes in Solo was whenever he's, you know, he says Chewbacca says something to Han and, and Han just goes, you're testy. 
And it's just like, you just, you just, based on that reaction, you just, you know, it's just, I, I, I love that. Screw you guys. That's good. Yeah. 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 He was, he was really nice. And he he was nice enough when the interview ended, I I told him I was going to send a photo to my mom and he was like, he's like, can I hold the book and point to it? It's a great picture. Super cool about it. And uh, so I just, you know, it was really nice. It was, it was, neither one of you asked him about the solo name scene. Did you No. we discussed it? We all, both of us, all three of us discussed it going into whether there was a way you could bring it up. I would have loved for you to bring it up. Yeah. But like knowing him, it it would just been, I don't care. The only question I regret not asking and I keep kicking myself over it was his review of rise of Skywalker, which Uh, I just didn't have a chance to get to it. And cause at one point I asked him like my third question about, films that make him cry and he looks at me like in dead seriousness and he goes, I don't cry. Like, <laughs> like a, a very like seriously like Harrison Ford way. And then I was getting ready to jump in with the rise of Skywalker thing. And he kind of pedaled his way to a couple more words and my time ran out. So ah, I, I, gotta yeah, be honest, I, I know it bothers you that you didn't get to that question. I don't think he would have given you much in terms of his review of rise of Skywalker. Uh-huh. Like I, I just don't think he, not, not a slight to him. I don't think he can like that quote that's that's going around right now. Was it for the, with the USA Today where they ask him if like, did you think Han was a force ghost? And he said, I don't know what the fuck yeah. a force ghost is, and I don't care. Like I just don't really like. <laughs> I think he showed up. It was a good performance in that very brief scene in, in Rise of Skywalker, and then he left. Like I really don't think he it's cares such, one way or the other. It's such whiplash from one week to the other. Where the the previous week you guys do Jim Carrey back to back. And you're like, yeah, and we're friends and we get along. And Jim Carrey's like, that's amazing. You guys get to do this together. And then, mm. like, Kevin goes in after Jake and he's like, that's my best friend. And Ford's like, I don't, I don't care. care. And I don't know what a best <laughs> friend care. is. Leave me alone. I yeah, he no was he, he was really nice. He was really nice. That, uh, he's uh, he's always been a very tricky interview. And Jake and I have discussed it a lot. I've had great interviews with him and then interviews that just were that just left me crying uh, at some point because I was so Can we tell the story? Can we tell the picture story? Oh, when I asked him for a photo and told him it was my birthday, and he said no. He said yeah, no, that was it. Yeah. yeah, that. Now I will say this. I want to. I, I want to uh, paint that picture. Um, that is such a Harrison Ford. He thing. wasn't like he wasn't like mean about it. It was yeah. one of those things where you're in a room and you ask for a photo, and the actor looks to a publicist, and the publicist takes care of it. Like he's like, yeah, uh, I don't know, and then. I think I said, I think I even said, it's my birthday. Can I take a photo with you? (laughs) He wasn't even mean about it. I honestly, I'm not even mad at him. I was just embarrassed. I'm just impressed. (laughs) Oh, I was so, I was so embarrassed. It was like one of those really like horrifying situations. I was like, I'll never ask Harrison Ford for a photo again. Honestly, that's why you guys ask for photos all the time. I never do it because I'm just afraid I'm going to be told no. And if I get told no, I would get that hot cold feeling that goes through your body. I've been told no before. Oh, yeah, but on your birthday by Indiana Jones? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, think about it. Yeah, in that context. I think I might be solo in that department of uh, of experience, to be honest. Kevin. I don't think anybody else may have had that. That is genuinely, like, (laughs) might be a top five quote of this entire podcast. It has to be. On your birthday by Indiana Jones? 
But, and again, it was one of those weird things. And Jake and Sean, you know exactly what I'm referring to. Yeah. Like you, if you, and Jake's had his moment before. You ask a photo for by an actor, and yeah. and, and the actor diverts it to the publicist. Oh, that annoys yeah. me so, so much. It, it wasn't even really. F- but but what bothered me about it was like clearly the publicist was like, yeah, we don't have time. We we got to move along. Yeah. And like Harrison Ford could have been like, you know what, it's your birthday. And he he just didn't. But, but the no. thing is, the thing that always bothers me is the reason they do that. That look to the publicist is because they don't want. To go on record is like, because then they do like, oh, sorry, I'm sorry, we're out of time. When it's just like, look, yeah. you're the actor in the room. Like, you're controlling this room. If you say yes, then it's going to happen. So don't put it on this random person in the corner well, to say no. Like, and like, I like at it least- better when they... I like it better when they tell you before you go in. Yeah. You know, a lot of times they'll, they'll even say like, we're really backed up on time. Just yeah. No, no, no pictures. Just that happened, didn't that happen with you with Keanu Reeves? Like you asked her for a photo and the public yeah, said yeah. no. And, I, when, and then, for, he, and when then I was he there, jumped in. Yeah. When I was there for John Wick 3, I asked him for a picture. And she and the publicist jumped in the room. The room it was like, no, we don't have time for this. We got to move. We got to go. And he paused. He goes, it's a picture. How long is it going to take? And so he's right. the one. So I have a selfie. He's holding my camera. And so uh, and as I'm walking out of the room, I hear him say, like, don't don't stop someone from taking a picture. It takes two seconds. Seriously, it's not a big deal. And I had to so Harrison. Much, I had so much respect for Keanu Reeves for doing that. Breaking news. Breaking news, which we don't get to do that Ooh, often what? On, what? The, on the show. Uh, Ryan Johnson is debuting. The 35 millimeter print of Knives Out at the Egyptian in Los Angeles on February 24th. It is the only 35 millimeter print of Knives Out, and he's going to be screening it one time only at the Egyptian. So, Kevin, book your flight. Uh, well, it's funny you brought that up because I just saw him tweet that because we were waiting for Jake to um, his Wi-Fi had to get rebooted. And I saw the tweet and in our interview, which is on Rio Blend. And if you go to uh, iTunes, he says there's a, there's one 35 millimeter shot in the movie and he will he wouldn't reveal to us what it was. He just said it's in the scene with Daniel Craig. So yeah. I'm now very curious if because he has a 35 millimeter print struck, will he do it? And for people who don't know what I'm referring to, essentially, he, he was he was going to shoot the movie on film, I think. And they shot digitally. And, you know, he's a, he's a very big film enthusiast, has always shot film. Even Last Jedi was shot on film. Brick, Looper, Brothers Bloom. Um, and they felt so bad that I think it was on his birthday. I think they brought a 35mm camera to set and they got him, they let him shoot one shot in, on film. And I just want to know what that shot is. It's somewhere in that ending Daniel Craig monologue. But, Kevin, I have a question for you. I, I just, I'm curious about this whole— okay, But if he didn't shoot the film in 35mm, if he shot it in digital— mm. And then they turn it into 35 millimeter. Does it still have all the attributes that you love about a 35 millimeter if he didn't actually shoot it in 35 millimeter? Not really. It's an interesting question because a lot of the conversions I've seen have been ones that have gone from like 35 to 70. Like you blow it up from a 35 print to a 70 print. Is it similar to Um, filmmakers that don't shoot films in 3D and then try to make them into 3D? uh, I, I honestly don't know that I can pinpoint a film that was shot digitally that I've seen struck on a 35 millimeter print and then watch that version. I don't know that I know of any because normally 35 millimeter prints are for like films that were shot on 35 millimeter and they're put into like Quentin Tarantino hosted little women on 35 because Greta shot 35. And I, and I wonder, I don't know. It's an interesting question. I don't know a single film that I could ever think of besides knives out that I've heard of that has gone to a 35 millimeter print from a digital shoot. Can you, but you Gabe? You know what or- he did in the 35 millimeter version of it, though? 
Mm. He went back and shot that one scene that was 35 in digital. In digital. <laughs> um, now you gotta, you gotta find it. Now you now, gotta go back and How funny it. would it be if he did the, it, did the, it was the reversal, though. The entire <laughs> film was shot 35. And <laughs> he got everybody be, back. He brought them all back and reshot it. Kevin, no, you should tweet him that clip. Now that he's sort of tweeted about 35, you should tweet him, pull out that clip from your interview, yeah. tweet it to him, and see if he will now finally reveal what the scene was. And I, I, will, I will say this, though. I mean, 35 millimeter di- or digital, uh, that uh, that uh, Luke Skywalker uh, saber scene will never look good. <laughs> so it doesn't really make a difference what format they show it in. So Which one? Which one are you talking about? <laughs> oh, throwing it, throwing it over yeah, shoulder. Yeah, I got, you. Yeah, yeah. I got you. You went back to Jedi. All right. We're moving on to this week's blend game. Um, we threw it out to social media that we were going to play hashtag tagline blend and pull out um, our favorite taglines. And uh, you guys all participated uh, using the at real blend social media page. Some people even emailed us their picks. Saw some really interesting ones. Saw a lot of repetitive ones. A lot of people going for um, alien, obviously being a very popular one Uh, back to the future, getting a lot of votes too. I think I get to go first. I'm going to go back over to the notes and see if we have an order. We don't. So I'm going to say that I get to go first. Um, Oh, and we're going to guess. Each guy is going to give their tagline, oh. and people have to guess what it's from. Oh, I, I like that. Oh, I do too. oh well, your, um, mine's going to be easy. I think mine I think mine might be difficult, but maybe not. Um, mine is, when he pours, he rains. Oh, I'll, the only reason I know what that is is just because I've been looking up taglines over the past. Oh, really? Yeah, so I don't want to ruin it for Kevin. Kev, do you know it? Wait, when he pours, he rains. Uh, when he Jake, pours, he rains. Jake and I were in the cab together to LAX. I think that's one of the ones we looked up. I don't remember the name of the film. So when he pours, oh, that's cocktail. It's cocktail. Yeah. Yes, yeah, 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 that's right. Now, that's right. I mean, that's the justification for it is I think a tagline should should generally be a pun or some type of play on words, right? Like there's some really clever taglines that describe the movie or it's some type of sentence that relates to what the theme of the movie is. But I think the ones that that stay with you the longest uh, are are really good plays on words. That's why I like Kevin's puns as much as I do. I, I admire when Kevin takes a really good pun. And, well, that uh, makes a lot of sense because that's not what I think a tagline should be. So, and then maybe that's why I don't like <laughs> Kevin's puns so much. Well, they're catchy. It's a catchy slogan that sticks with you and it fits the movie. And so obviously in Cocktail, he's a bartender. Uh, they came up with... The single greatest gimmick of all time, which is twirling the bottles around uh, in which I've never seen a bartender do ever. No, never, because it's virtually impossible. You waste so much alcohol doing it. Uh, Alcohol just pours out of the bottle. And so, of course, instead of the line here, I am describing a dumb tagline. When he rains, he when it rains, it pours. It's when he pours, he rains. That's clever. That's very clever. Total 80s poster. Yeah, it's Tom Cruise, just Tom Cruise, looking like Tom Cruise in front of a neon cocktail sign. And that was enough to drive people into the theaters in droves Did it in do the well? 80s. <laughs> oh, yeah. I love cocktail. Really well. Yeah. So good. It's so cheesy. It's so uh, 80s. And uh, and that tagline, I think, fits it perfectly. Taglines so, uh, are, are, are another level of genius if they're done right. Like There are art. so many good ones. There's so many good ones. Kev, what's your favorite? Well, before I give my favorite, I want to rattle off some of the worst ones that I found today <laughs> when I was uh, texting you oh, guys. please do the dolphin one. Please do the dolphin I'm one. Gonna, well, uh, speaking of puns, from Paris with love, uh, the two agents, one city, no mercy. But mercy uh, is spelt like oh, <laughs> oh no, yes. no, no, that's uh, awful. <laughs> uh, 
Sean, what do you think about Yippie Kaye Mother Russia? Oh God, I hate that one. Yeah. That one makes me so angry. That's and the then fifth was it Ghost Ship was C Evil, but S E A. I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, that was um, not bad. This one good. is the pun game is strong on this one. Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> Holmes for the holiday. I thought that was, you know what? I, that makes it's me laugh. Bad. I, I don't bad. mind that one. Um, and then Jake's favorite, actually, I'm going to just spoil Jake's now, is Alex Cross, the Tyler, uh, Tyler Perry film. <laughs> the tagline is, don't ever cross Alex Cross. But I love, lazy. I love yeah. that they have to specify which cross we're talking about. Like, they couldn't just say, no one crosses cross. Like, they have to say, no one crosses. Specifically, Alex Cross is the one you don't cross. Right. Right, and it doesn't help that it goes with a poster of Tyler Perry dramatically <laughs> looking back over his shoulder. <laughs> Sean, do you know William Bibiani? Uh, that uh, he do, he does like I think he does stuff for like I can't remember the name of the site he's on, but he's a, he's a film journalist. I know him, yeah, I know. Him. And so this, the only reason I know about this poster that I'm about to give you guys is because he tweeted it every day for like a year. Okay, um, and I remember because he's a great guy. I follow him on Twitter, and you know, so <laughs> this is where I got the dolphin one. So this is the day of the dolphin is the name of the movie. The poster's tagline is unwittingly he trained a dolphin to kill the president of the United States. <laughs> That's the tagline for the film. And then finally, striking distance with with uh, Bruce Willis. They shouldn't have put him in the water. If they didn't want him to make waves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I actually like that one. Ah, that is pretty good, actually. That's a good one. All right. My favorite. Um, this is interesting because I, I, I do like. I'm going to give you the one um, that I was going to go with. And you guys can guess it. because It's kind of a great one. But when he said, I do, he didn't say what he did. Oh, I, I, I like I said, oh. I, I, the only reason I know what that is just because I've been looking up different ones. So I know what it is. That's it. True lies. It's true lies, right? Which I yeah. Thought that was that's a great. That's actually oh, a great that's a tagline. Good. That's a good one. All right, my favorite. I think the one, and and again, if we're looking at this from a perspective of a, me, a, a uh, excuse me, a memorable. I, I just got these Invisalign things put in my teeth, so I'm still getting used to the, how they how they how I talk with them. Um, uh, I got them today. Uh, so this tagline, I think, speaks so perfectly to the film, but also is so clever and brilliant that I just. Love. I like the tagline more than the movie, if that makes sense. Um, all right. The tagline is when there's no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. Oh, hold on. When there's no more room in hell, the yeah. dead will walk the earth. I mean, that is just is, it, is that that's not like Dawn of the Dead or anything, is it? Like a, it is. It, it's, it's Romero's Dawn of the yeah. Dead. Is it really? Wow. Yeah. That's and great. It's funny because I, I think the only reason I ever learned about that tagline was because when Snyder did his remake, which I love, I think Snyder's remake is actually a better film than Romero's personally, but I, I can understand the, the, yeah. the nostalgia of the first one. But that tagline, when I read that was just mind blowing. Like that is genuinely exactly what that film is. And what a great way to put it. You know what I mean? Like what a horror movies have really horrifying. good taglines. Like, horror movies what, tend to. But think about the context of that. Like, like that, that is a line that just tells you what you're about to watch. Like that right. is cool, man. I, and again, I, I know it's kind of demented and dark and, but, but that's, I, a, I that's a great mental it. image too. Like, like hell being so full of, of these demonic creatures that we got to go up. <laughs> That was great. Oh, my. And they're walking the earth. And they're walking the earth. It's what they're doing. That's like Kane in Kung Fu. Exactly. Little 
Kill Bill reference. Or is that, no, that's Pulp, that's Pulp Fiction. Fiction. That's, yeah. that's Jules. Jules yeah. says that. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Jakey, take us um, on. So mine, mine's going to be easy to guess. So, so I'm going to tell you my qualifications before I tell you what it is. I don't necessarily think it should be a pun. I think it should be, one, so iconic that people know what the line is and use it within pop culture without even necessarily knowing what it's from. Um, and I also, I think it makes you, it, like whenever you read it, it should make you go, Oh shit! I need to know what the context of that of that line is. I need to I need to understand what it means. So the one that I almost went with is actually for a movie I don't like. I almost went with Jaws too because the line is just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water. Because that's such a great line. Because I feel like people use they they take that line and play with right. it a great lot. Tagline. They play like you like yeah. like news writers yeah. use that just when you thought it was safe to do this or just when you thought it was safe to do that. And and so it's 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 gotten it's yeah. now bigger than Jaws too. But the one that I am using um, is uh, in space, no one can hear you scream. Because I feel like that line from Alien, next to, beneath the poster of just the cracked egg, makes you go, what the shit does that mean? Like, I I see that line next to that image, and I instantly have to know, what is the context of that line? I mean, if you know nothing about Alien... But all you know is that cracked egg, the word alien, and that line, you think, I have got to know what the context of that. And, and to my other point, that line is now so much bigger than the poster, so much bigger than that movie, so much so that it is a part of pop culture where people use it and replace space with other things. You know, in, in blank, no one can hear you scream, or in this, no one can hear you. It is, it is now bigger than the movie Alien, which I feel like a good tagline exceeds the movie that it is attached to. So that's why I went with that. Yeah, it's very true. That I mean, that's obviously one of the most famous taglines ever. And just that image alone is so iconic. Yeah. The the green color scheme yeah. of the cracked egg means so much uh, to film audiences in general. Uh, great, great choices this week, guys. Let's that get was the a audience great one. Real that was, fast. Gabe, was that your idea? Also, yeah. I, I do I, I do want to clarify. Snyder did use that tagline on his poster. For did he really? That's yeah, I think that's, that's where I think that's where I found it. And I think when I, you know, I when I saw that movie and saw that tagline, I thought that was the coolest tagline ever. And then I had to research it back and realize that it was on Romero's poster. But Snyder did put that on his poster, which is awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, the In Space, No One Can Hear Your Scream was chosen uh, not just by Jake, but also uh, Raj Sahani and many, many others. Uh, Kevin, here's one you can try to guess. Just because they serve you doesn't mean they like you. Clerks. Yes. Scotty043. Chose that one. Uh, James Vasquez chose there are 3.7 trillion fish in the ocean. They're looking for one. Is that Finding Nemo? Yeah, it's Finding Nemo. Yes, I was going to say is. Deep Blue Sea. I, was, I, was, I, don't, I don't know where I was going with that one. JJ McKay came up with a really great one uh, from the 40-year-old virgin. Oh, yeah. 40-year-old virgin. The longer you wait, the harder yeah. it gets. <laughs> hmm. I don't get it. Could you explain line. it? <laughs> and... Uh, Carrie Vanderberg uh, chose Why So Serious by The Dark Knight. Another really great tagline. Uh, thank you, everybody, for participating. What, what's the social network one? I like that one, too. The oh, you don't get million. to have 500 million friends without making a few enemies? Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, that's a, that's good a one great too. one. Yeah, that's a really good one. Uh, I wonder if Sorkin wrote that tagline. I feel like he... Like, do you think the writer of the movie ever gets to have input in the tagline? 
I think it just goes to the marketing yeah. department, to be honest. Now, with I you. do think that mm. if you're a big enough director, you probably have marketing approval. And I would imagine Fincher probably approved that line, but I doubt that he had anything to do, him or Sorkin, anything to do with the writing of it. Did you guys ever read about Wes Craven's favorite tagline of all time? Like, he uh, <laughs> he, he, he loved this tagline. <laughs> no. Um, let's see. In no. space, no one can hear you scream. <laughs> he, he, uh, just, he just loved that tagline. Yeah, he, just, he, he, he really liked right. he liked all that right. one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's right. pretty good. Uh, yeah. All right, next week we started it with underrated seventies blend. Next week is underrated eighties blend. Mm. Hashtag underrated eighties blend. You're going to come up with your favorite underrated eighties film. Um, so, of course, how you define underrated is going to be up to you. Or should I say up to us, necessarily, because we're making the picks. But you can also play along um, either sending us your picks at realblend at cinemablend.com if you want to choose email. You can go to social media and tweet us using hashtag underrated80sblend. Um, or just stand outside on your front lawn and shout it at people as they walk past. <laughs> and we'll see if it gets back to us somehow. Um, a review for this week comes to uh, us from Wendy Lynn, who Gabe is pretty sure is from Australia. And she writes, I found this podcast after watching both Jake's Takes and Fox 5 DC for a very long time. I love how different your questions are, and I feel I have learned so much about filmmaking from your insights. It has also pushed me to watch films like Uncut Gems, Parasite, and more. Films which I never otherwise would have seen. And Kevin... I even went to watch films that screened in 70 millimeter at my local independent nice. cinema. Oh, heck that yes. That's awesome. That's a victory. I am, I am, that honestly makes my day. Thank you. That's awesome <laughs> to hear that. I'm also writing... <clears throat> excuse me. To let you know that you have many international fans. When you read your iTunes reviews, remember you are only seeing the ratings and reviews from the U.S., you have a five-star approval rating on Australia's iTunes page and many reviews, too. So that's incredible because none of us knew that. And I want to say that to that end, for our listeners outside of the U.S., Gabe recently found a tool that we were using to curate your iTunes reviews specifically, but then we realized that it was broken and it wasn't working the way that we thought it was supposed to work. So we think we found a new solution to it. However, to be sure, if you want to make sure that, that we get your um, our eyes onto your review, uh, submit it to Apple Podcasts. But you can also send it to us in the email, uh, realblend at cinemablend.com. And that way it'll get in front of uh, both Gabe and myself. Uh, here's another really quick review, just to let you guys know that the international ones, we kind of freed up that thing and, um, and, and it opened up a bunch of reviews from international listeners that we had not known before. Uh, this one was in Spanish, completely in Spanish. So we kind of ran it through a translator, a Google translator program. So we're sorry if we're slightly off, but it comes from Pablo. Uh, and he says, gracias. And he says, my English is improving because I hear you every week. The content is always outstanding. So uh, wow. I bet you he can say Dunkirk. Yeah. Because, yeah. Uh, this episode <laughs> brought to you by Rosetta Stone. <laughs> exactly. So thank you to all of our international blenders. We appreciate Appreciate you guys. We will be back next week uh, with our uh, interview with Lee Wanell on behalf of the Invisible Man. In the meantime, follow the guys on social media at Jake's Takes at Kevin McCarthy TV, and I'm at Sean underscore O'Connell. The show is at Real Blend, uh, and we will talk to you guys soon enough. With like I said, that Invisible Man interview, reviews from that film. Jake will talk about Wendy and any other big time breaking news things that should come through. So until next week, Dunkirk on your birthday. By Indiana Jones? <laughs> That's top five line. Yeah, it sure. really is. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. 
To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.